History Nerds United. Hello, nerds. Welcome to the History Nerds United podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Today, author Sarah Horowitz and her book, The Red Widow. Going to love this one about a French woman named Meg. I'm not going to try and actually pronounce her name because I'll butcher it. But Meg is a hot mess in today's vernacular. We dug into it deep with Sarah. It was a great conversation. Let's get to it. I'm shutting up. Sarah Horowitz, let's bring her on. And here we go with author Sarah Horowitz, The Red Widow, The Scandal That Shook Paris and the Woman Behind It All. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. So before we jump into the book, it seems like there's mostly only two paths to writing history books. Either you are a history professor or you are a journalist who wrote an article that became too long, so you had to turn it into a book. You are the first type. So tell me, how did this all come to be that you were writing The Red Widow? So that is a great question. So I found out about Marguerite Stenile, the woman who's the Red Widow. Um, she's known as Meg to all her friends and family members um, about 10 years ago. And I was on a tour of Père Lachaise Cemetery with some friends. It was a beautiful summer day. And we were just enjoying this incredible scenery. You know, it's a cemetery where Jim Morrison is buried and Marcel Proust and Oscar Wilde. And our tour guide took us by the tomb of Félix Faure, the man who was president of France in the 1890s. And he told us that Faure died while he was having an assignation with his mistress, um, Marguerite Stenel. And then he said that some years later, um, Meg's husband and mother had ended up murdered. Um, and he strongly hinted that she had done it. And I thought this was an urban legend. You know, the French love to tell stories about politicians and their love lives. Um, and so I didn't believe this, but I was curious. Um, and I never heard of her. You know, I studied 19th century French history. Um, and so I started, you know, reading around and I realized that he had actually been telling the truth. Um, and there, there's stuff written about her. There's a good legal history that um, takes her as one of the case studies. But there's also some really bad stuff written about her that, you know, didn't really do the sort of research that, um, like, I, for instance, might have wanted to see. And I thought her story was so fascinating. And then once I got to the actual archival sources in Paris, I realized that no one knew the full story. And then it was totally totally bananas and there are kind of wild coincidences and she herself was this absolute femme fatale who left this trail of death and destruction in her wake <coughs> and so I really I just kind of um I didn't fall in love with her as a subject because she's a very complicated woman but I fell in love with telling her story because it's really fascinating and for a while I thought of writing it as an academic book um, because I think academics would be very interested in sort of what it has to say about women's lives and, you know, attitudes about crime and the criminal justice system. But as I talked to it, uh, to friends about it, as I talked to friends about it, um, they all said, like, you have to publish this for a general audience because she's so wild and her story has so many twists and turns. And so I, I kind of at once hour was like, all right, let's try and see if I can make this work. Um, and that's basically how the Red Widow came to be. She is fascinating. And I really appreciate when I reviewed the book, 
the thing that I say about it is it's very clear you don't fall in love with your subject here because let's just say Meg's kind of a jerk. There, There's a lot of things that she does that just are inexcusable, including maybe possibly murder. And at the same time in your book and you walk through this, it does not condone what she did, but you kind of understand. I, let's start from the beginning there, right? So Meg grows up. She's not born into a rich family per se. And maybe we should start with, let's pretend we're therapists. Maybe we should start with her mother. What's her mother like? Ooh, her parents are quite, that in itself is quite a story. So I got to start with her father. When her father is 28, he marries the 16-year-old daughter of Nan Cape. And her father is from a very prominent industrial family in France, the Jackie family. They're metal workers, so clocks are something they make. He sort of falls, I guess, you know, by, by his terms, in love with this much younger woman of a much sort of humbler background. And at the time, the class difference was really shocking because he's from this very established, very elite family and She's not. Um, to us, I think the age difference is like really, really appalling. The marriage causes a scandal within the family, and they stay married um, until Edward, the father, dies. But they and they have four children. It's very tumultuous marriage in the sense that he has affairs and is also abusive to her. She's really shaped by both of her parents. And Meg, for her part, sees her mother as very passive and very childlike. But I think we need to understand why her mother might have been that way, that she never had a chance to have a real childhood. And that she was sort of always under the thumb of her domineering and abusive husband. Um, but she really defines herself as someone who will never be passive, who will always pushed further to see just how far she can get. And her father is charming. He is the life of the party. He's very outgoing. He's very energetic. And she really takes after him in all those respects. Um, I think more disturbingly, her father seems to take a sexual interest in her as an adolescent. Um, I, you know, we don't really know whether he was in fact sexually abusing her or just sort of sexualizing her. Um, neither is great, obviously. Um, but he he educated her to be seductive, to attract men's attention. This is very unusual at the time. Um, and she really, um, you know, sort of always tries to be the person that her father wanted her to be, which is this very charming, very seductive, woman. And so she's sort of always trying to push towards her father's side and away from what she sees as her mother's passivity and immaturity. Now, there's a lot of things about this story that line up with today's attitudes and how we treat celebrity and everything. But what I do find funny is what you said at the very beginning. Back in the day, a 28-year-old marrying a 16-year-old, not completely crazy. That that happened back then. And it was like, oh, okay, sounds good. But oh, somebody out of your class. That's ridiculous. And I mean, we think of France, especially Paris, these areas. Paris is that center of kind of everything goes. Sexuality yeah. is just out there. Like, that's what we think of when we think of history, where it's like, oh, if something really crazy is going on, it's probably happening in, in Paris, right? It's the Florida of back in the day in Europe, basically. I love that. <laughs> Paris man, not Florida man, but Paris man. 
So uh, before we get a little bit further, I want to do a little bit of defining, right? Because there's two things that come up when we start talking about Meg as she grows up and as she becomes part of this society. Number one, the word that I do see uh, with her name a lot is courtesan. Yeah. What do we actually mean when we say that? Because that's one of those words you've seen it a billion times, but no one's ever actually defined it for you. Yeah. So a courtesan is a sex worker and courtesans have a long and rich history in Europe. And there's amazing books. Um, Nina Kushner has written one on 18th century French courtesans, which I love. Um, And so they were as sex workers sort of at the top of the hierarchy in many respects. They often came from quite poor backgrounds, but they would have a system where they would have like a series of stable long-term lovers um, who would pay them vast sums of money. And so, you know, they might have, you know, a, a batch of different relationships going on at the same time. These are women who would often live um, in extreme luxury. And it was almost a sort of sign of distinction to be a rich man who would bankrupt yourself for your your mistress who was a courtesan. And certainly it was a sign of distinction that you had a courtesan as a mistress that she had chosen you. So these are women who, as sex workers, they have some choice in um, who they're with, the conditions that they're with, these men, sort of, you know, the, the financial arrangements. Many of them in the 19th century had very tragic endings. They sort of lose their money. They end up broke. But a few of them have really, um, in some ways, what we would probably consider quite happy endings. Sometimes they maybe married one of their clients um, and were accepted into high society. Sometimes they just made a huge fortune um, and, you know, live out a, like, fantastic life in some amazing villa. They're really idolized in many ways, and there are lots of novels and paintings of them, but they were also seen as a danger and a threat, that they were, you know, sort of bringing the vices of poor people into these elite circles, that they were corrupting men. And so they're, they're sort of sources of fascination, admiration, and horror all at the same time in the 19th century. So you can use sex all you want, just don't be poor, basically, is what we're talking about. Yeah, don't be poor and don't be open about it. Mm-hmm, yeah. And now another term, I've seen this, and I'm totally going to butcher it, Belle Epoque Paris. Yes, yes. Did I get it even close to what it's supposed to sound like? You did, amazingly. So um, this is, it translates to the beautiful era. That was actually a term only applied retrospectively. Um, so people at the time were not considering it um, this sort of age of pleasure and beauty. It's the late 19th, early 20th century. It really ends with World War I when things go not so great for anyone in Europe. And we think of it as this era of sort of festivity, of gaiety, um, when Paris was at its artistic peak. This is, you know, sort of you have the post-impressionists, you have Cezanne and Matisse and Picasso and Modigliani. You had Emile Zola. You had all these sort of amazing writers and artists. uh, And the fashions are incredible. And Paris at this time really kept Pass itself as a capital of pleasure, as a sort of tourist destination. This is also when the Eiffel Tower goes up. So it's um, for folks who have seen, what's the Woody Allen movie um, about nostalgia in Paris? Midnight in Paris. 
Yes. So like, you know, the, the kind of the Belle Epoque is one of the years, which is a site of nostalgia of, you know, it's supposed to be Paris in its glory days. So this is the Paris that Meg's about to enter now before. There's just this slight spot before this that I remember going back and looking at. Meg's about to go out on an adventure and she's going to have a lot of them. But right before she really breaks bad, for lack of a better term, she has her first marriage. And it seems like an actual love match. Can you talk about that? And I hate to ask this question, but, you know, it's revisionist history, but if her first marriage doesn't end that fast, do you think Meg still becomes the Meg that we read about for the rest of the book? I think had she married someone else, she would have had a totally different life. When she's an adolescent, she falls in love with the young army captain. Um, Her father breaks it off. I think there might have been some jealousy on his part, anger that she had sort of maybe escaping from his thumb. Um, And then also he was not very wealthy. You know, her father dies. There's this huge scandal about her relationship with this young army captain. And so she really doesn't have great marital prospects. And is also, you know, deeply in mourning for this father who was a complicated figure, but who she idolized. There's a 19 year gap between her and her husband and his name is Adolf Stenow. And um, he is a painter from Paris, uh, and he falls in love with her. He's like a distant relation of one of her in-laws, and he is just absolutely enamored of her. She's not really enamored of him, but she thinks like living in Paris would be great. She also likes the fact that he's a lot older because um, she thinks that he'll replace her father in many ways. And she sort of says this quite explicitly um, in her memoirs that, you know, she was looking for a father figure. And so she decides to marry him and they get married in 1890. She's, I think, 21. He's 40. And she goes to live with him in Paris. And it is not a happy marriage um, for a number of reasons. Well, I remember you saying that it took like a week before she's like, screw this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She she tra- basically leaves the honeymoon early and um, flees back to her mother and is like, please, like, you know, I don't like this. Uh, her mother is someone who believes that sort of once you've gotten married, you're just going to stay married for the rest of your life. And so she goes, Meg goes back to her husband and lives in Paris um, and they're they're totally compatible. So, you know, Meg is sort of active and ambitious and outgoing. And Adolf is passive and timid and sort of childlike. And I think, you know, she really wanted to marry her father, but she ends up marrying someone who's like her mother. So there's this temperamental incompatibility. He's very content with being a kind of middle class, not very successful artist. She's very ambitious and wants more. It's also the case that they're always under financial strain. And he's having affairs with both men and women. And she was absolutely horrified by his affairs with men. Um, I think she maybe walks in on him having sex with another man. And, you know, this was so stigmatized at the time um, and she thinks about divorcing him, but they have a child. And so they decide to stay married, partly for the sake of their daughter. But also divorce at the time was a scandal. And so, you know, I think there was a thought of like, we need to maintain appearances. And 
you know, we'll just sort of live independent lives and each have our own affairs. But it's absolutely true that I think if she had married someone else, we wouldn't know a thing about her. She might still have had a lot of scandalous history um, and done a lot of scandalous things. But I think the kind of very public way that she becomes scandalous would not have happened with a different spouse. As you mentioned, she is a hustler. Right. Like they have financial problems. And one of the reason is that Meg may be poor or middle class, but she is not going to live that way. The the champagne taste with beer money, basically. And that part of the book was very interesting where you talked about how she had to take what she was working with and make it look like she could have these people like having people over to your place was a big thing. And you had to really put up appearances. And that was a lot of the stress for her, wasn't it? It was. Um, and so, you know, entertaining was so important to her creating a place for herself in Parisian high society, which the family just didn't have the resources um, to be that. And so she, you know, she didn't have the servants to prepare stuff, to make the food. She would make the food. She didn't have the the sort of servants to help her get dressed. And so, you know, she's like furiously rushing to get everything finished five minutes before the guests come. And she also has to hide the family's sort of the degree to which they're cash strapped at certain points. So there are all sorts of holes in the linen, the table linens, um, and she hides them with flowers. And so she she sort of puts these beautiful flowers over the table linens so that, uh, you know, people can't see that she can't afford to replace her linens. Listen, we're going to say a lot of things about Meg that aren't positive, but she's pretty industrious and she figures it the hell out. She is. She's she is really hardworking and she's really smart, not really moral. But she's got a lot of talent. (laughs) I would also think I would be total tangent. I would be a terrible Frenchman around this time because I have people over now and I just I'm like, I'm wearing sweatpants. You guys can wear sweatpants. I'm over it. Right. Like we're we're ordering pizza. Let's relax and not pretend we're something else. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially after the pandemic, like real pants. What's that? You know, like actual shoes. I can't imagine that. So, yeah, no, um, it's it's very hard life in many respects. I mean, I think she's up before anyone else in the family. I think she goes to bed after everyone in the family. Um, She sort of always is hustling. It's not a life I would like. You said, like, say what you will about her, but she is hardworking. And hardworking in a lot of different ways, which we probably won't use the words that we should say here, but the first big scandal. Yeah. This is something I remember hearing about this without names. It was just, hey, you know, there was that one French president who died mm-hmm. hooking up with someone. And mm-hmm. I don't ever remember the names attached to it. And then I started reading this. I'm like, oh, this this is the guy and this is the woman. Mm-hmm. And we don't know exactly what happened in that room. But do me a favor, build me up to this. She somehow ends up with the French president. How does this come about? She does. So she decides she wants to enter high society. She decides that she wants some male companionship and she wants to earn money. And she is kind of knows that her husband's not going to do any of that for her. Um, And so she starts having affairs with prominent men in the 1890s and basically strikes a deal with them where if they will buy one of her husband's paintings, she will have an affair with them. Um, So it's a very unusual form of sex work at the time. um, And it was a way 
partly that she never touched the money, or at least that it sort of always went through her husband in some ways, and also was designed to boost his status to make him sort of a celebrity painter. And in 1897, um, she's in the Alps. Her She's on vacation with one of her lovers and her husband, which sounds like a very awkward vacation. And to make it more awkward, she runs into the president of France at the time, Félix Faure, who's there. He's like witnessing sort of maneuvers of the troops. And he is absolutely smitten with her. And she doesn't seem particularly enamored with him, but she, you know, she knows he can get her a lot, right? And so she makes it clear to him that he is going to have to buy one of her husband's paintings at a hugely inflated cost. And so he has the French government spend $30,000 on one of her husband's paintings, which is just an astronomical sum. I mean, much, much more than they went for. Um, much, much more than a kind of, um, you know, even a very expensive portrait painting by the most esteemed portrait painter. To give you a, a sense of comparison, Rodin's Gates of Hell, which are um, this sort of masterwork, I think, in bronze, um, the state paid 40000 for that. And that that's like was a lot more labor because it's huge and would require a ton of studio assistance. And also the material was not going to be cheap, too. And, you know, again, it's a masterpiece as opposed to Adolf Stenel's art, which is not fantastic. Sorry, Adolf. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so they have this affair um, and he's totally smitten with her. Um, she likes the kind of access. Um, she manages to get a lot of sway over positions in the French government. He is happily sending her all sorts of money. And for once, the family is actually flush with cash. I think they redo their roof um, during their relationship. And then the thing that you're alluding to happens in February of 1899. They're having one of their daily assignations in the Elysee Palace, which was the French White House. And he has a stroke. And and then a few hours later, he dies of that stroke. It's not 100% clear what he and Meg were doing when he has that stroke. So there's some sort of disagreement among the sources, whether or not they were having sex, um, how close she was. But it is clear that they are together when he has this stroke that ends up killing him. I will say, whichever story you look up is very entertaining. They're always very detailed, whatever they decide to go with. Meg never comes out looking very good. Yes. Or she comes out looking too good. It depends on how you want to define that. Yes. When you said she has some sway in the French government, you're not kidding, though. Like, she's saying, oh, hey, my friend wants that. Yeah. And she, she's making moves in the government. She yeah. becomes an actual power player in the French government. Yeah. So she has a brother-in-law who is like a kind of minor judge in Paris, like a sort of low level in the judiciary. And she manages to get him a position as basically chief of staff to the Minister of Justice. It's good to have friends. It is. Her husband gets um, the Legion of Honor, which is a very prestigious award given by the French state as she's having an affair with the president. Um, and it really becomes clear to many people, not just her friends and family members, that it, you know, if they want to get a kind of leg up in the civil service, that they should appeal to her. And even after Fall dies, she maintains a lot of her influence. Um, the there's all sorts of stuff in the archives that you know, it didn't go into the book because it sort of wasn't a lively story, but you know, she's I don't know, like 
one of her former servants, she gets him like a nice job in the post office or something like that. Um, another one of her lovers is a, uh, industrialist and she basically gets around the French bureaucracy. Um, and he gets his factory up and running in a day, which is, you know, unheard of thanks to her intervention. And so she's this kind of political broker, you know, she can pull the right strings. She has a lot of people in her debt. She has a lot of people who owe her their positions or maybe just, you know, kind of want to cultivate her favor or want to be her lover. Which is interesting because we've talked about this time in France, be scandalous, don't let anybody know about it. But this can't be kept under wraps. Too much is going on, a lot of whispers about it. She was able to weather this storm, the first one. Is that how she got away with it the first time? Or was it also, it's the French president, we got to make sure that we keep up appearances, otherwise we make it look even worse? I think it's more that one, that I think there were lots of kind of codes of discretion, which still to a degree are in place in France about not talking about a, you know, a president's love life. Everyone in Paris knows how he dies. And there's some newspapers that kind of hinted it. And then there are two newspapers, one on the far right and one on the far left, which they come close to naming her. It's like a Madame S, but they don't actually name her. And I think it's significant that they're kind of either on the from the right or the left, they oppose the regime. And they're the ones who are kind of willing to break some of the silences. So I think there are these kind of codes of silence, which are still, you know, even in the 20th century, very much in place. The famous example is always that François Mitterrand, who is president, he had a whole second family, which you know, everyone in the press knew about. um, And but they just sort of never said anything about I think until he was kind of um, at the end of his presidential term. As an American, like, as I said, we don't necessarily know these names. But even in Paris, it seems like she's not still remembered all that well, right? Like you heard it, you walk through a graveyard, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. If you say her name right now in the middle of Paris. Are people going to be like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, we know who that is. We just don't talk about her. Or is she kind of forgotten at this point? So I think that the way that people remember her is her relationship with Faure. And I think that very often, if French people know anything about Felix Faure, who is not a particularly sort of distinguished president, or did he do a fantastic job of being president, it's how he died. That doesn't necessarily mean that they know her name. And it certainly doesn't mean that they know anything about the murders of her husband and mother. But there is a kind of, you know, lore that circulates of like, oh, yeah, I've heard of her, right? Like, you know, that's how Fraud died. So they, they kind of know bits and pieces of her. Well, let's get to the grand finale on this one. You just mentioned it, the murder of her husband and mother. This is one of the weirder double murders I've ever heard of because Mm -hmm. everything I ran through my mind of this is how it happened. It all seems weird. So do me a favor, walk me through what happened. What do we think happened? Mm -hmm. What on earth is going on, basically? So on the morning of May 31st, 1908, Um, Her valet wakes up at like 530 in the morning and he's sleeping in the attic and he comes down. And as he's on the landing to the second floor, which is where the bedrooms are, he starts hearing these sounds. Um, And so he goes to see what they are. And he finds Meg tied to a bed. 
um, with a gag by her mouth. She's calling out for him. He also finds Adolf dead with a rope around his neck. And then also her mother, who had been staying with them for a few days, dead as well with a rope around her neck. And so Meg is the only survivor. She's also the only witness. And, you know, the police come rushing in and they start questioning her. And the story she tells is that it was a red-headed woman and three robed men wearing broad-brimmed hats who broke into the house. They intended to rob it. They thought that there would be no one there, but they find out that it's inhabited. They kill her husband and mother but spare her because I think that she's her adolescent daughter, which, you know, at this point, uh, Meg is 39. So this is not a terribly credible story, you know, in addition to the kind of like robes and the hats. um, And that doesn't make any sense. And the house is in pretty good order. There's no signs of a break-in. It had been raining the night before, but there are no tracks of mud in the house. The whole first floor is totally undisturbed. The family silver is right there, as are a lot of valuables and um, sort of valuable art. Um, Even on the second floor, there are valuables lying in plain sight. Um, I think there's like just cash hanging out on the floor. You can look at the crime scene photos, um, and I reprinted some of them in my book. And the sort of the cabinets just are not that disturbed. You know, it's not particularly messy. I think if someone kind of took 10, 15 minutes, you could probably put everything back in order. And so it doesn't really make any sense. A lot of members of the press and a lot of members of the public think this woman is lying. This can't be the truth. But the police then say like, uh, you know, we believe her and we're going to see what we can do to find these dastardly perpetrators. It's pretty clear that the authorities are trying to shield her from scrutiny. It helps that the chief investigator is either a lover or one of her admirers and actually asks to be assigned to the case to help her out in this moment of crisis. There are kind of basically two theories of the murders. One of them is that she did it and she was unhappily married. She wanted to marry someone else. And so she decides to kill her husband because that's less scandalous than getting a divorce. And then the other one is, um, and this is one that has some evidence behind it and some people who were kind of in the know who said like, yeah, that's actually what happened, is that she has a lover over that night. They get into an argument. The husband wakes up, Adolf wakes up, hears this argument, and the lover gets upset. Maybe he thinks it's a trap, and he ends up strangling Adolf with his bare hands. And then the mother maybe potentially just dies of fright, right? Has a heart attack on the spot and is horrified um, at what she sees. And then um, the lover and Meg try and cover this up by making it look like a um, you know robbery turned murder. That's the one that I'm a little more inclined to, although in the book I present both because I think readers get to make their own decisions. And it's been fun. You know, my aunt read the book and she is 100% convinced that Meg did it. And my father is totally convinced that, you know, her lover did it. So it's a sort of choose your own adventure. I mean, definitely. You, you willingly point out that, hey, 
maybe this, but here's the reasons why it can't happen. And then maybe this, but here's the reasons why it can't happen, but it could. What I would pay so much money for is to see the face of the first police officer who heard her story and how hard he had to try from being like, what? What are you talking about? Because while there are different theories, the story Meg told is obviously a straight up lie, right? Whatever happened, I'm willing to bet my life that it was not the story that Meg told at all. Yes, that expression must be priceless, right? Of like the robed men. And someone, um, one of the authors who's written on this case pointed out that the hats looked a little like sombreros. They didn't have the embroidery that sombreros had, but the kind of broad brim. And it's like, this is just so improbable. Why you would rob a house wearing long robes it just doesn't seem at all probable. And it's very funny because in the archival record, you can actually see sometimes the police are like trying to get her to make her story more plausible. So they'll say things like, well, couldn't those robes have been workers' blouses since workers wore long blouses? And there was actually a, a print shop on her street. So there are always workers around. And she's like, no, 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 it wasn't workers' blouses. It was definitely robe. Other moments where, you know, the, the investigators, they're just trying to get her to save herself. And she won't take it. And she just won't let it go either. They're perfectly happy to be like, yeah, we're just going to let this die away. And without giving away too much towards the end, she pushes the issue and it's not a good idea. Yes, yes. So she, this is the case where, you know, she is someone who will never settle. She will never be passive. She will never accept defeat. These are these sort of things she learned from watching her mother and saying, like, I'm not going to do that. And it doesn't always work well for her. She's under this cloud of suspicion because everyone thinks her story is bananas um, and that she's either hiding who did it or had a hand in the murders themselves. And so all her high society friends and her lovers are like, we're not going to have anything to do with you until you clear your name. And so the, it's really clear that the authorities just want this case to die and want it to go away and, you know, want to never hear of this again. And they sort of try and bury it over the summer of 1908. But she is like, no, I need full exoneration. And so she eventually turns to the press and it blows up in her face in a really dramatic fashion. That is when it becomes a truly wild story with sudden reveals and her unraveling in, in sort of, you know, as she's talking to reporters. If I can put you in a time machine and send you back then, and I will stipulate that she won't murder you. Yes. Would you be friends with Meg? 100% not. Too much of a sociopath for you? I don't think she was a sociopath. I think she was someone who was very exploitative and manipulative of her friends. And I think that she was always sort of like, what can this person do for me? And one of her female friends at one point thinks that Meg might have tried to poison her not like a big poisoning but like i guess make her throw up a bunch of times just a little poison like poisoning right it's like an arrested development like treason and then her friend is like yeah actually i don't think she tried to poison me i just sort of got things you know i was confused about certain things but you know i can't imagine having friends who i would be worried that they would try and poison me i think the kids would say nowadays that she's just a lot she's a lot she's messy I think it would be fun to be a fly on the wall in her salon and sort of see her operate, but I don't think it would be fun to actually know her. 
<laughs> so follow her on TikTok. Don't ever actually try and meet her. 100%. For an author, is it hard to write somebody that has so many negative qualities? I, I, a lot of people want to stay away from that. They want to have a hero somewhere. And while we have talked about that there are reasons Meg is the way she is at the same time, these are her decisions and she makes them and she's smart enough to know what's going on. Is it hard as an author to write somebody whose redeeming qualities can be quickly buried under everything else she does? Yes and no. So I think the hard thing is that sometimes I just got so tired of her shenanigans. You know, particularly she kept blaming Jewish people for the murders. And it's just like, no, stop being so anti-Semitic. Just stop. She really has these sort of elaborate conspiracy theories that are really damaging and, and feed into kind of horrible anti-Semitic tropes that get picked up by the nationalist right. Um, and then, you know, in the interwar period, these sort of same tropes feed into fascism. So there are lots of times when I found her exhausting. I think that I found her always interesting, partly because she's you kind of never knew what she was going to do. I think it's sometimes it's fascinating to just witness someone take a hatchet to their life in an attempt to save it. And the other thing is that I wrote a lot of this during the 2020-21 academic year, which was like a horrible time in many respects. You know, just things, everything was a catastrophe. Um, and it was the sort of height of the pandemic. It was this period where I felt very intensely that there all this there was this new set of rules to figure out right like masking and what should your mask be like and where should you wear it and social distancing and if you're exposed how long do you quarantine and you know you have to have all these sort of conversations with friends and relatives about their risk profiles so it just felt like sort of learning this whole complicated series of rules that was often shifting and so there's something enormously fun about writing someone who just broke all the rules and who just didn't care what other people thought, what was in her best interest, what was in the best interest of the people around her. She was certainly very interested in herself. I know that much from finishing this book. Yes. Well, listen, Sarah, this has been fantastic, but I'd like to end with this question, all right? Um, and especially you're a teacher, you're a professor, you know this. A lot of people remember history from grade school, where it was just shoved down your throat. It was the same story all the time. And now they've grown up and they're like, I don't read history. History is boring. One of those people is sitting in front of you right now says, history is boring. I don't want to read this book. Why should I read The Red Widow? What do you say to him? So I would say that if they are someone who likes fiction, that this is a story that is wilder than fiction. And had I written it as a novel, it would be considered improbable. You know, I think history gets a reputation as just a series of dry facts um, and a lot of memorization. I don't have a great memory for facts. And so I like to tell my students that history is not about memorizing facts um, it's about understanding larger structures, interpreting complicated documents. You know, I've had a lot of students who think that history is like presidents and generals. And and I want people to feel that like history is something that can also be them and it can be messy and funny and wild people. And, you know, like 
I love all the shows about, you know, women who scam, right? The kind of Anna Delvey content, the Elizabeth Holmes content. Meg was not a scammer. Um, she was scammer adjacent, I would say. Um, but she was sort of like them in that she was messy and ambitious and she was really smart, really hardworking, and just didn't always use her talents for the best purposes. Well, Sarah, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. I had such a great conversation. The Red Widow, go out and buy it, nerds. In the meantime, hit us up on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, listen to other podcast episodes. Please leave us ratings, leave us reviews, especially if they're five star. Get them up there, please. Till next time, nerds, stay cool.